This choir podcast is brought to you by the story of Christianity told as good news for all. I'm Rick Machuga, and I'm a Christian. When I was young, I thought there were two classes of people, those who were saved because they freely chose to believe, and those who were damned because they freely rejected God. In middle age, I still thought there were two classes of people, the saved and the damned. Only now, I thought in terms of God's sovereign right to do whatever he damn well pleased. Now I'm old, and I still believe there are two classes of people. First, there are those who are saved, and they already know it. Second, there are those who are saved. It's just that they don't yet know it. A few weeks ago in church, we sang about the reckless love of God. How it chases me down, fights till I'm found, saves the 99. This song, this chorus, perfectly sums up my little book, the story of Christianity told as good news for all. You can get it at Amazon today, and thanks for listening. A bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering evangelical. What could go wrong? This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast with Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and Jason Elam. Welcome in, everybody. This is Jason. Welcome to another episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Peaceful Warrior Coffee Company that will roast your beans on the same day they ship them to you, and shipping is always free. Check them out at peacefulwarriorcoffee.com. And just for Messy Spirituality listeners, you can use discount code MESSY to get 20% off your first order. Welcome in, everybody. We're so glad to have you listening for another episode of the podcast. And I'm joined, as always, by my incredible co-hosts, Kyle and Lola. Welcome, guys. Hi. How are you guys? Kyle, how are you? Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm Kyle, good. how are you? Kyle's good. Well, what's Kyle's, Kyle's show. You know, catch, catch, catches up. Kyle's good. Kyle's real good. Good. How are you guys? Staying busy? Very busy. Yeah. Very busy. This is the perfect time of the year because it's getting warmer and everyone is coming out and they want their houses fixed and their bathrooms done and all that stuff. So very busy time. Very good time. Can you travel on down here and help me with all of my... All of my uh, home improvements. Of course, because we already have a pre-standing arranged, or we, 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 I guess a, a pre-standing uh, appointment for a bowl of cereal. So absolutely. Yes. Kyle and I are going to have a bowl of cereal together. If you guys don't follow wow. me on Facebook, you should just go do that now because Kyle and I had a conversation about having a bowl of cereal together. So, yeah. How cool would that be? Yes. Oh, yeah. Brandy had a great idea for our last church before we started it. She wanted to have a cereal bar in the church where people could come in and have, you know, 20 different kinds of cereal to choose from with toppings and things of that nature. That would have been fire. I would have loved that. Oh, for sure. For sure. I spend the whole service at the cereal bar. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Yes. (laughs) Okay, but I know this is off topic. No, that's okay. There's no such thing. It's on topic here. It's messy spirituality. It's true. And this is spiritual. It's about ice cream. So have you ever put cereal in ice cream? Because let me tell you, it is life-changing. Wow. This is my recommendation of the day. 
for everyone out there. You Cereal and ice cream. Put, okay. Yes. We're going to need more like, details than that, kinds. Lola. What, what, is, just... what is your cereal <laughs> of choice and what flavor ice cream does it pair best with? Okay. You should probably just go with like a, a base ice cream such as vanilla or chocolate or strawberry. You should not branch out with like the cookie doughs of sorts because it will not mix well. <laughs> but you should cover it in like a syrup of your choice and then also a little bit of milk with it and then put like cocoa pebbles or fruit loops uh, with strawberry ice cream or uh even Rice Krispies, just whatever, put anything in there. This sounds like something my 12-year-old came up with. Listen, no, it's what stoners do. <laughs> oh, got it. Welcome <laughs> to True Confessions with Lola. <laughs> Listen, Matt's been a bad influence on me, okay? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you were totally fangirling on that episode with Matt, by the way. Listen, It was so I'm cool obsessed. to see you totally fangirl. I'm obsessed with his writing, okay? I just think he's so raw. You know, like, okay, the book of James in the Bible, that was always my favorite book because I just felt it was very blunt, it was very raw, and just very straight up. And I feel like that's how his writing is too. And so I just really gravitate towards that. So You heard it here, ladies and gentlemen. Matthew J. DiStefano wrote the book of James. (laughs) Yes, he did. Right there in the Bible. Uh, I can attest to this. He's a good guy. He's the best. He is the best. I also highly recommend <laughs> Matthew DiStefano today. <laughs> in addition to cereal and your ice cream. Yeah. Yes. So many recommendations. Man, this episode went off the rails quick. It's fine. They like it. <laughs> so They love it. Any new kitchen witch type activities, Lola? Um, I have discovered... Sticky, sticky weed, like chicken weed, kind of. Okay, I don't, I don't know. No, translate that for us normal Hold people. On. What? I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's called chickweed or sticky something. Someone will probably correct me on it. But okay, are you smoking this weed or? No. Okay, <laughs> it's literally just like a weed that grows in North America. And it's very much covered my lawn. And so I discovered it the other day and was like, can I eat this? And I figured out that I can. And it tastes like corn silk or like some parts of it taste straight up like corn. So that's really nice. But it's good for healing wounds and sores. And so that's really nice. Wow. Not not necessarily, um, yeah, not really. It's medicinal witchy, weed. Medicinal. Yes. yes. Medicinal weed. Yeah. We, know, we know what a fan you are of medicinal weed. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Very good. Can, can, I, can I tell you? Please. Uh, I was on my way to Colorado. Oh, and no. so it was, it was a, you know, it was a couple with my old church. They were moving out there. They asked me would I drive out there with them. I said, sure. Yeah, I think I should do. So, it was the night we were going to leave. They, he wanted to stop off and see his mom. Cool. So it's about six or seven o'clock. We're going to pull off after that. All of a sudden, I know where I got this tremendous toothache. I mean, throbbing, just out of control. It's six o'clock. There's, I can't get to a dentist. I can't do anything. So I'm sitting outside trying to fight back the tears because that's how much pain it is. Oh God! And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like sitting on a stoop, and I, there's this little grassy little, you know, place there, and I, I heard the strangest thing. You see that blade of grass right there? 
get it and chew on it. I'm thinking, I'm not doing that. Uh, you know, Dawn probably took a ways over there. I'm not, I'm not doing that. But the pain was so incredible. I was like, okay, fine. I went over there, picked up this blade of grass, chewed on it, and the pain went away. And it and, and literally went away. And true story. Wow. True story. And I, I never had to get the two serviced or anything. And that was back, it had to be back in, I want to say, 2009, maybe. Good Lord. So at that point, when you heard that voice in 2009, did you think that was God talking to you? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. I, I testified about that for... It's a, like Saul. Yeah, it's like Saul on the God. road to whatever, Damascus. Yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the voice was, but it, it worked. So. Very cool. It worked. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah, it worked. It was a, it was from a, a blade of grass. So all that grassy, weedy stuff you're talking about, I'm I'm all on board. Um, He's for it. Wait, but what kind of? I need to know what kind it was. I don't know. She wants to know what kind of grass heals a toothache. Someone write in and tell us that. <laughs> yeah, do that. It's called Google, Lola. I know. It's fine. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's time once again for Auntie Lola's WTF Bible Story! What the fuck? Okay, so today we're talking about Lot's wife who turned to a pillar of salt. So Sodom and Gomorrah is where they stayed for a while. But we all know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. They were kind of overridden with sin. And instead of fixing that, God decided, I'll just start over. I'll just burn it like I do. So before they left, they were instructed by two angels, don't look back. But I don't believe that they were told the reason why you shouldn't look back. So it is said in scripture that as they were fleeing, Lot's wife looked back and turned to a pillar of salt. There was not really any more description given of that. But it seems like a pretty harsh punishment for turning around. Also, after further uh, research, I found that some scholars believe that the pillar of salt was not literal. It was meant as in the it was raining like fiery droplets of acid to destroy the city and she got caught up in it when they were fleeing. So that's really sad to me. Mm-hmm. Especially if they were the only holy and pure people leaving. Yeah, that didn't you know? last long, did it? Not really. It never does. No, it that's true. Noah gets off the ark. First thing he does, grow a vineyard, <laughs> make wine, get drunk and expose himself to his kids. Love it. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Wow. Father of the year. Here's the award. Ooh, number one dad. All right, Kyle, let's hear your take on uh, God telling someone, if you turn around, I'm going to fry your ass. Well, I tell you what, it it makes for really good church obedience. (laughs) I mean, you know, you hear your pastor tell that story and and you already have this idea that, yeah, that your pastor is the closest thing to God you'll ever see. So... You know, they tell these stories and it really puts a lot of fear in you. Now, the, the, the story is troubling all by itself because, number one, like most of these stories, most Christians take these stories literal. And the problem with that, of course, is that all it does is promote fear. And, and, but when you give it further review, you think about it 
little bit of common sense and break it down and become very analytical about it, it really becomes a story of a God who isn't very smart because what is it going to benefit this God to turn this one person to a pillar of salt? It's not like if you do this, everyone forever in that region or whatever is going to automatically always do what you say. So, you know, when I, when I look at these stories, I, I point the finger back at the, the God in these stories and say, you know, you, you are very smart here, pal. You know, because whatever plan you decided was going to come out of this, it always backfires on this guy. So, one, it's, 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 it's cruel and it's unnecessary punishment and it's, it's, it's what's the point. And so for everyone that takes these stories literally, why not think about it literally? Like, think about it literally. If, if that literally happened, then what was the point? What did it prove? What did it solve? You would think that if a God is going to do this, it has a real good plan and a reason for it. Apparently, it doesn't. Therefore, the only thing we can take away from it is that God is a maniacal monster, a power-hungry, bloodthirsty monster. And that's all I can see there. Well, can I say something? It leads me back to the whole critical thinking aspect of it. So... On God's part and on humans too with critical thinking. So like to just follow someone blindly when they say, do this, don't look back, don't don't stray from what I'm telling you to do right now and not giving you a reason why or just explaining themselves and then expecting you to not question it also feels weird to me. And like, the thing when I subscribed to evangelical Christianity was you can never ask why with certain things. You know, you were not allowed to question any teachings. It was just this, this is the answer. This is what you're going to do. And if you stray from it, there's going to be a severe consequence. So this kind of backs up the whole like shebang of what I was taught and what a lot of people were taught. So, and it, it, it's a disservice to most people because then you start to lack critical thinking skills, I think. Absolutely. There's my rant. (laughs) No, that was really good. And I think makes a really important point that you both just made that, I mean, even in the New Testament, you've got the story about Ananias and Sapphira, right? They gave this gift, but it wasn't the full offering, but they claimed that it was. And the story goes, God struck them dead by the power of the Spirit. But the very next line is, great fear swept through the church. And we know that, I mean, the God Jesus talked about in the New Testament was not the author of fear. And so I think something went wrong there, right? I mean, but we have this I don't know why we like to use these stories and turn them into scare tactics to control people. And it just, I mean, that is a good text to use for an offering, right? If you don't bring the whole tithe Mm -hmm. into the storehouse, (laughs) come on, uh, then, you know, God could drop you down. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just terrifying. And, uh, I love that we are focused on critical thinking. I think that that really is the way forward for so many of us who grew up just believing whatever we were told. But you know what's scary is there's so many people who 
who are at war with critical thinking, but they, when you ask them to identify what it is, they can't tell you. Yeah. They don't know what it means, you know? Yeah. Anyway. You know, there's another element of that story you just mentioned, Jason. I was thinking about this the other day. I'll probably do a TikTok on it, but you have to think, what kind of pressure were they under to feel as if they had to go sell their property from the beginning? Like they, they, they had to be under great, great pressure to feel like, well, we got to do this because it didn't come from their heart. Because if it came from their heart, they would just get the whole thing. So they, they had to feel some kind of pressure. And you, you, you think about what that relates to all of the people who, who tithe and give the pressure that they're under, what promises were made, what conditions were given. We don't get that backstory. And then on top of that, where, 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 where my, you know, my sarcasm probably will come into my story on this is why did God kill them? Why isn't God killing the, 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 the fake or why, why, why isn't God killing the people, the, the pastors and preachers today that is stealing money from people? That, guy, that guy's totally asleep on that. So, you know, totally asleep. He's blind eye. The Baptist in me says, though, Kyle, we're living in the age of grace. Well, apparently they were too. I know. That, that's exactly oh right. God. They lived in the same age we live in. So that's a yeah. throwaway <laughs> excuse. But that's yeah. what the Baptist in me would say. But you're right. Yeah. But they, you know, God got so upset with those two people, but yet has been turned a blind eye for the, the countless of, of people that are stealing people's money every week on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. It's total blind eye. Where is God now? <laughs> oh, yeah. Where is God now Ugh. is my question. I th- why, why were you so active and now you're not and you're so powerful? Where are you now? Were you a false God? Did you evolve as a God? Did gods evolve? Maybe, maybe, God, maybe I'm looking at God right now, though, when I see the two of you, when I see myself. Maybe I'm looking at divinity right there. Maybe God has chosen to implant God's self into all living creatures on the earth to testify of God's created, creative power. I don't know. But I do know, and that's a great point, Lola, that if, if, if God is real, if God exists the way we've believed in him in the past, and God is the type of being that would drop Lot's wife for turning around, for looking longingly towards home, then we're all screwed. If God exists and would drop Ananias and Sapphira for not giving a hundred percent and only giving partial, I mean, why did why didn't God kill the people who didn't give anything? That's the thing. What what happened to every? What where is the testimony of everybody else that survives these things? Yeah. Where is all that? And did you change from this? Like, did you learn something? Yeah, exactly. And was that God that angry over money? Right. It feels like we went, we we lost the plot somewhere very early on. (laughs) And it's been passed down to us this way. And now it's a mess. Uh, speaking of yeah. losing the plot, the church has certainly done that yeah. when it comes to... Are you talking to, about for this episode or just in general? <laughs> <laughs> in general, yes. But uh, in, in the, on the issue of drugs and helping people in recovery. And I got to have a conversation recently with my friend Josh Lawson. Josh is an incredible guy. I drove up to Portsmouth, Ohio 
a couple of years back to an event that he and Keith Giles were speaking at. And that was actually the first time I met Keith. And uh, I just love Josh. He's one of the best communicators I've ever heard in my life. And he's got a new book coming out on this subject, Jesus and Drugs. So y'all check out this conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Josh Lawson, welcome back to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, man. It's great to see you. Hey, always great to see you, Jason. I was talking on the podcast with the co-host earlier about driving up to Portsmouth for the event that you did with Keith Giles. I don't know how many years ago that was, what, three or four? At least. I think we're almost three or four from the pandemic starting now. So I think maybe it was more like five or six. Five or six. Man, one of us is getting old. That's not you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Anyway, that was a great event. And I remember hearing you talk during that event and thinking, this guy is an incredible communicator who could be president of the United States one day. Um, I know you actually ran for county commission, I think it was, recently? Correct. Yes, that's correct. Do you feel like there are more campaigns in your future? Uh, man, not at, not at the moment. There's no immediate plans. I kind of did that on the, on the fly, um, you know, because I was approached about it. And then some people said, yeah, do it, do it, do it. And I saw an opportunity to uh, kind of use the campaign locally to address some uh, very important, you know, urgent social issues that uh, our county was facing and advance the public conversation, which I think I did that. Uh, ultimately lost, you know, in the total, in the, in the outcome of the election. But um, that's where it's sitting for now. So I, I don't have any follow-up plans at the moment. Well, you know, there's there's kind of a dual purpose behind an election right, or a campaign for election. Obviously, you hope to win, but stimulating a conversation, we don't want to underestimate the value of that. That is huge. And you were able to change the narrative for your area I know one of the issues that's been huge in your heart, you wrote a book about it, and now you've written a sequel to that book, is the issue of addiction and the people who are living with substance use disorder. Um, your book, Face of Addiction, really brought a human face to something that a lot of us just kind of see um, you know, as a peripheral issue, but it's, it's a big deal to you. Why did this issue become so important to you? Yeah, well, that was the question I always got when I first kind of began to wade into this kind of work, because I'm not a person with a whole lot of lived experience, at least not in terms of, you know, hardcore drug addiction, right? And so people, most people who are involved in the work are either someone like that, they have lived experience, they may be in recovery from a substance use disorder, and they're trying to give back, or they're a public health expert, you know, of some sort, they get paid to show up and and care about those things. There's not a whole lot in between. So people ask me that. And, you know, I could give various answers. I am fascinated with just addiction in general. I think there's a lot of socioeconomic issues that surround the um, just the whole topic of drug use and, and the war on drugs in America. Uh, but ultimately, and this is an issue I kind of uh, open up a little bit in the preface to my first book, I went through a very difficult time in my life about six plus years ago now. It wasn't drug related, but it was kind of my equivalent of a personal rock bottom experience, something that was very difficult for me, very taxing. I couldn't pull myself out of it sought counseling, read books, just couldn't find any help until there were two guys who came into my life at that time who kind of gave me the tools I needed to pull myself out of a very dark place. Both those guys were in active recovery from substance use disorder. Both those guys had been uh, written off by many people in their lives at many points along the way. You know, folks would have said things like Narcan them once and then let them die, lock them up, throw away the key. 
But thankfully, they found their way back from a very dark place and they brought an insight, you know, I think into just the general human experience that was able to help a guy, you know, a normie like me. So that kind of formed a conviction in me that, that motivates all of this work. But there's not a person out there right now who doesn't have a needle in their arm, who doesn't have the same potential, same value. Um, you know, and so we need more folks, I think, who are a part of this, con- this conversation and engaging from a kind of a more compassionate lens than, than most people take when they look at this. Yeah, I remember when I was the Celebrate Recovery pastor at a pretty large Methodist church, the the divider that went up between the Celebrate Recovery crowd and the rest of the church, it was like, oh, you're one of those people or you have those issues. And when we'd have like Celebrate Recovery Sunday, everybody would love it. You know, on, on Sunday morning, the recovery folks, we would lead the worship service. But when you'd invite the church folks to the recovery meetings, they're like, oh, well, I don't have those problems. I'm not one of those people, you know? It's so easy to label and identify people because of a specific struggle when the reality is, I think we're all addicted to something. I mean, for me as a pastor, it was people-pleasing. Oh, yeah. Well, I understand that 100%. I've got a good friend here who's in our recovery community, and he likes to say that we're all in recovery from something. Same idea. And, you know, I'm a recovering codependent myself, among other things. <laughs> Some of our vices and addictions, though, aren't, um, aren't as visible, don't seem as urgent, or maybe they're more socially acceptable, right? So we kind of get a pass on certain things, whereas folks who use drugs and who kind of fall into chaotic active drug use don't. Uh, I think it's a, it's a bit of a double standard and very hypocritical of society at large in, in a lot of cases. Well, one thing that I learned during my time in the local church was that we do a lot of harm to people who struggle with these issues in the church. And so I'm so excited to see your next book that will be released here shortly, Jesus and Drugs. Uh, That's not a title that uh, I don't think I've ever thought would be on the cover of a book. And And the graphic, the image on the cover of your book is just startling. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, so the official title is Drugs and Jesus. And uh, so I worked with a writing coach on this one, uh, Meg Calvin, if she's out there listening, shout out to her. Hey, Meg. Um, when, we talked about, when we talked about the title, uh, we talked about trying to do a spinoff of some type of popular cultural you know, phrase, maybe. And that's, that's a tactic you can use to decide on a title. And, I, and what came to my mind was an old Tim McGraw song. Uh, you know, I'm down here in Southern Ohio, Central Appalachia. I grew up on country music. Tim McGraw is a classic country artist. And he's got an old song, song called uh, Drugs or Jesus, right? And it explores kind of that more stereotypical notion of which path are you going to go in life, good or bad, uh, darkness or light, drugs or Jesus. And it's funny when you do a quick search like on Amazon and you look up, you know, drugs and Jesus together, uh, you'll see a few other titles out there. Uh, the first one that came up for me was Drugs Versus Jesus. So it's, again, it's the same idea. So I think it's really novel, and that's what I was shooting for, joining these two worlds, you know, faith and harm reduction, drugs and Jesus, and exploring the intersection between them and the really the untapped value there in that world. So and I think the cover design, shout out to Raphael uh, Plindo at uh, Choir Publishing for that very visceral uh, uh, image he created to kind of show that um, on the cover, I think was just just fantastic. So I'm excited. Oh, about it. Absolutely, yeah. I, I remember saying there's a painting that's kind of made the rounds on social media, where a guy is about to in- inject drugs into his arm, and then there's this Jesus figure behind him that slides his arm in and takes that needle. What, what comes to the mind of someone like you, who's more educated along these things, when you see an image like that? You know, I think that image has its own 
it has a place, you know, and I, and I can see, you know, the sincerity behind it and I can see how that can really speak to people. Uh, for me, you know, with what I was going for here, that image still implies too much of that, you know, Jesus in my place kind of thing, right? Whereas the call I'm trying to issue in Drugs and Jesus is, hey, for those who claim to follow Christ in life, not just believe in him, you know, metaphysically, um, what this means is coming alongside of the, those who are suffering, those who are marginalized in our communities, not as a savior, so to speak, figure, um, but as a friend, you know, as someone to accompany them in their journey, live from them, realize that, they, you know, we've got just as much to learn from our neighbor as our neighbor does from us. And that's not a posture that the church historically is known for taking, right? We, we speak more to our communities rather than listening to them. So I really wanted to convey something that was less of that, oh, Jesus in my place, Jesus as, as Savior, which is, which is all fine. And that, that's part and parcel of the message of the crowd that I'm trying to speak to here, which is evangelical Christians, uh, but also to give more of that flavor of Jesus coming alongside of offering himself as an object of faith for those who cannot see the image of God in what he calls the least of these. If you can't see their value just as a human being, okay, well then see me in the least of these, the most vulnerable members of your community and serve me there. That's kind of the idea, you know, and the thrust behind my book. Well, I love it. I think the book is so beautiful. I hope that everybody listening will grab a copy of it. Um, Drugs and Jesus, we'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. And I hope that everybody will take advantage of that. Especially, I know about 50% of our audience are still active in the church. You need a copy of this book. Read it, pass it along to church leaders, especially, especially, especially if you have a recovery program in your local house of worship. I think it's really, really important for them to get a copy of this book. All right, Josh, I wanted to ask you, if you were designing a recovery ministry in the local church today from scratch, how would that look different than the typical approach in evangelicalism today? Well, I mean, it would be informed by, you know, the conditions on the ground in one's local community. You know, I think too often we take cookie cutter approaches to things, not that there's anything wrong with having a curriculum ready-made or a template that you use. Um, but I think a lot of our ministry comes down from on high instead of being informed from the ground up. And so, you know, that's, I explore that idea a lot in the book, uh, offer suggestions for how churches and individuals of faith might, you know, approach this um, issue if they want to get involved in providing solutions. And it all starts with, listening to and learning from the voice of what I call the other. This is a theological concept, you know, anybody outside of our circle, right? So in this case, it's people who use drugs who are often very marginalized in our communities. How many of these folks in your community uh, do you actually know? Can you call by name? Do you spend any time with? Uh, have you spent time imagining what life is like in their shoes, how they view the world? Um, how society looks different. It looks very different from the margins than it does from the centers of power. And I think we see this all throughout Jesus's ministry, his example. So, you know, a ministry in a local community should start there by putting the ear to the ground and listening to the real needs, the self-expressed needs. That's an important point, too, of the people in our community who we're trying to be helpful to, because often we think we know what people need, right? But we really don't. We don't understand at all where they're coming from. So that's the difficulty, I think, especially for evangelical Christians who you know, see the world in very black and white terms. We think there's one universal problem, sin. And one universal answer, salvation. And so we can just disseminate that throughout the world, right? But it's more complex than that when you get inside people's lives. So we have to start with listening and learning from our neighbor rather than approaching them as like a missionary endeavor, you know, someone that, you know, we're tasked with saving. 
Ooh, you, you raise a really interesting point and it actually leads to the next question that I wanted to ask you about because I think there is that mindset in evangelicalism or at least a lot of it. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but in a lot of the circles that I've traveled, if we can just get them to the altar, if we can just get them to pray this prayer, if we can just get them to read the Bible every day or pray every day or join the church and get baptized, then they're, it, what they really have is a sin issue. What do you have to say to somebody who approaches recovery from that mindset? Yeah, I mean, that's fine. And, and that may work for a number of people. But we all know, I think if we're being honest from experience, I, I know it from experience, I know it from observation, it doesn't work that way for everyone. You know, some people come to Christ in that, that kind of traditional evangelical way of approach, and it does transform their life. And they do find a firm foundation on which to rebuild. Um, but I know just as many people who have expressed the opposite, where they sincerely tried going that route, and it didn't give them the tools they needed uh, to enter and sustain, in this case, recovery. So we have to approach it, you know, uh, again, kind of trying to shed that, that mentality of one size fits all. And realize here that, you know, there are many different paths to, in this case, recovery. Um, so it's not just always abstinence only. It's not just always 12-step AANA. There are, there are many other options out there um, that folks may benefit from. And so we need to make that as freely available as we can in the hopes that those who need the help can get the help and we don't get in their way, you know, by, by insisting that they come this path, right? I think that's a challenge for a lot of us. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. And it's something I've struggled with too, because my pastoral training really taught me the opposite of this. You know, it taught me to, to speak and be heard rather than to listen and to learn. And I think uh, what you're talking about is a completely different approach. It's, it's the good Samaritan getting to know that victim on the side of the road and taking them in and walking that mile in their shoes and then taking care of their needs into the future. I, I don't think we see a ton of that lived out around us right now. I think a lot of what happens in churches and recovery, uh, again, don't want to pray with too broad a brush. This certainly isn't everybody. But there is a whole lot of spiritual bypassing taking place where we just say, if we could just pray this prayer or just do this thing, rather than listen to the people who are most affected by it and follow their lead on what they need. You're a former pastor yourself. Uh, are there some things that you've seen in the church that you would just recommend that people never do again? I mean, the, the church has done a lot of harm to a lot of people. Uh, and I'm guessing that's true of folks struggling with addiction as well. It is, you know, and when I was pastoring specifically, you know, I was part of a small old mainline congregation that was coming off a long period of decline. Uh, they had no formal leadership for about a, a decade before I showed up. They brought me on board as a last uh, Hail Mary attempt to try to rebuild a kind of a vital ministry in our community. And so I sought to do that by aligning the church's ministry, this main mission focus with the needs of our local recovery community and, and people who use drugs. And that was a very hard um, road to take, you know, that many people were not ready for. Many people didn't quite understand or see the value there. And so, you know, we really have to take Paul's words seriously and seek a renewal of our minds when it comes to ministry to the, the most vulnerable. And it, it starts, again, with that whole thing. Don't assume you know what someone needs. Don't assume you know, understand where they're coming from because you don't. You know, just me and you, Jason, we have some similarities, but there's a, a, a wide gap between my subjective worldview and experience and yours. I can't assume that I even understand 
that when you use a word, you mean the same thing that I mean when I'm using it, right? So we have to spend more time trying to get inside the heads and the hearts of other people, see the world from where they're coming from before we can ever begin to hope to actually help them rather than just try to fit them into our mold, you know, and call that, you know, call that help, right? Absolutely. I know that uh, even in the course of writing your first book, you had a lot of relationships that you learned a lot from. You told a lot of people's stories in your first book and really, again, put a human face on this issue. What do you think are some of the most important things you've learned from listening to people struggling with substance use disorder? Yeah, Um, that I've had it pretty good. You know, I, I, I've had my struggles just like anybody else. I grew up poor, white Appalachian. Um, so, you know, I, I live in an area where people don't like to talk about the concept of privilege. And I get that. You know, I, I've got my conservative streak. I'm all about self for self-sufficiency, personal responsibility as much as the next guy is. But it's not that we don't all face unique challenges. We do. But the difference is some of us got the wind at our back kind of helping push along the way. And some of us got it, the wind to our face, you know, blowing against us. And one thing I've learned is that by and large, I've had the wind at my back compared to a lot of folks in my community, across the country, across the world. And to recognize that demands a certain amount of humility, right? And a certain uh, posture of saying, okay, well, look, I don't get it here and I'm no one savior, you know? So I'm not going to swoop into town here as, you know, the next great thing, as if God's just been waiting on me to show up and now he's going to move, right? Uh, not at all. So, so really that's what I've learned, I think, above all else is that, you know, I've, I've had it relatively good compared to most. And so, you know, I have a certain, a certain call, a certain charge to, to pay forward or, or to return the favor of, of like the grace, the blessing, whatever you want to call it that I've received in the hopes that other people can kind of you know, experience and share this as well. I think if you go way back in Jewish Christian history, that was the original vision. You know, when God said to Abraham, hey, here's what I'm going to do for you, buddy. And here's the point. Not so you can keep it all to yourself and talk about how we've got the truth and nobody else does, but so this can come through you to the entire world and it can bless everybody, all the nations. So it's, it's, it's made me, I think, a little bit more humble over the years than I used to be. Let's put it that way. Mm. So if, Somebody picks up this book and reads it. What do you hope you accomplish with that reader as they're reading through this second book? Yeah. So I, I did my best to walk a very fine line in this book uh, between like a, a pastoral voice, gentle and leading, because I know people are going to read it, especially my target audience being evangelical Christians, who many of these things are going to be like, whoa, I've never heard this before. And then also, on the other hand, prophetic and challenging, realizing that people are dying across the country now in record numbers. Accidental drug overdose kills more people under the age of 50 in America than anything else, (laughs) anything else. So in a situation like this, the sensibility, you know, of the old gentleman or, or lady in the pew is not my primary concern, you know, when people are dying at this rate. So I really tried to walk a fine line there and um, disrupt thought patterns, you know, myths surrounding drug use, addiction, why a person uses to begin with, you know, if all people that use drugs necessarily have an addiction, they don't, Um, you know, what are the socioeconomic conditions that are often underlying uh, a person's life when they end up sliding into chaotic drug use, 
What, what, what's, how does trauma play into this? You know, adverse childhood experiences. How do all these things intersect? It's a very complex, um, complex situation. And then we don't often think of it in those ways. You know, we often see it very black and white. It's just a moral choice. It's just a failing. You just say no. You know, you just get clean. You know, even some of that, the language we use, we call people clean if they don't use. That's problematic in and of itself. You know, so I have a chapter in there talking about nonviolent language and stigma and how the way we speak reveals what's in our hearts towards people. You know, we think they're dirty just because they use a, use a substance, and this is not true at all. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, disrupting thought patterns as gently and yet as in, in your face as I could. That was the whole point behind this book. Well, you did a, a beautiful job with that. It's such a good book. It's an easy read, but it's so deep and there's so much content and there. I mean, just substance. There's real substance in this book and it can be life-changing. I'm really grateful that you took the time to write this out. So how do you respond to... When, when I was pastoring a church, we had a night where the county health officer came and taught some of our church folks to use Narcan. And um, we got some pushback in the community. People are like, if these folks are trying to kill themselves with drugs, why do you want to stop them? How do you respond to that? Well, first of all, nobody or very few people are trying to kill themselves, right? So that kind of betrays a distance from the problem there. Uh, I, I talk about that. I cite a, a, one of my favorite quotes, the British author John Galsworthy said that our idealism increases in direct proportion to our distance from any problem. You know, so from a distance, it all seems very simple, easy to understand easy solutions, easy answers, right? Uh, and that, 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 that very take on the situation shows a distance. You know, most people are not trying to kill themselves, right? Nobody wakes up and says, hey, I want to die of an overdose today. A few people do, right? But they're in a very severe situation. The majority of people do not. Yeah, they're trying to escape some pain, probably. You know, they're trying to cope with life, maybe in an unhealthy way, sure. Who of us, you know, who among us hasn't done that, right? Um, but there are many myths out there like that. Many un, uninformed prejudices is what I, what I refer to it as, as in the book. You know, so I'm trying to build a bridge through storytelling, through the dissemination of knowledge and awareness, uh, scripture, the example of Jesus to kind of build a bridge from a place of uninformed prejudice to, to well-informed service, you know, because, you know, if my target reader is, uh, compassionate evangelicals with a social conscience, who want to be involved, but they don't really know where to start. They don't really have a handle on how to get into it. Um, this is how we begin. We begin by thinking about the way we talk about people and we look at, honestly, what are our own latent unconscious prejudices that, that inform the way we think and the way we talk about folks who struggle, in this case, with a substance use disorder. And, um, you know, I wrote the book as a conversation starter with reflection questions at the end of each chapter where somebody could really think about what they're being confronted with here and look inside themselves and see, okay, where's my current mindset coming from? How was it, how was it formed? And how is it standing in between me and my neighbor? So good. So good. Well, I'm so grateful for this book. Again, folks, it's called Drugs and Jesus. You're going to really, really appreciate this book and its author, Josh Lawson. We're going to have a link again in the show notes so you can find it quickly. Uh, hit us with that release date one more time, Josh. April the 11th. April 11th. All right, right around the corner. Uh, you want to make sure you get a, a hold of this one. And I'm sure that our publisher, Matt, would want you to know, do not pre-order this book. Buy it on release day if you do want to buy it, which I'm sure you will. Uh, but we'll help you do that by putting a link in the show notes. Uh, Josh, I've seen some exciting stuff on your social media about new opportunities for you in your area. 
Do you want to talk for a minute about what you're doing now and what your hopes are for the future of your community? Yeah, I mean, locally. So right now, I'm involved with the um, the innovation hub of our local university. I've done some work there in the past trying to connect the programs and services there with folks in recovery. I just started back there under a new role as their entrepreneurship program facilitator. Uh, the Innovation Hub, basically, that's what it does. We, we're encouraging entrepreneurship in, in rural America, right, with a digital tech focus on top of all of that. So, you know, we're recognizing the fact that the, uh, the landscape across the country, and especially here in rural areas, has changed economically. And of course, this underlies, you know, the experience of a lot of marginalized community members who are just struggling day to day to get by, often turn to substances because why not? What else do I have to look forward to in life? So to provide more opportunities for people to give them the tools and the opportunities they need to kind of um, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. That's a popular conservative adage, which, you know, I, I, I agree with to an extent, but we also have to recognize that most people don't have a pair of bootstraps to begin with. So give them a pair, teach them how to use it, and then set them free, right? We've got to empower folks to, um, you know, really do uh, the things that are best for them. So I'm involved with that right now, among other things that I'm still uh, involved in, a number of nonprofits and volunteer coalition efforts, uh, just related to different social concerns in our community, human trafficking, homelessness, you name it, really, almost everything I've got a little bit of a hand in. I'm often stretched a little too thin, uh, but again, it helps to kind of expand my worldview and give me a better window into what folks actually need rather than what I think they need. I love that somebody like you is helping connect uh, entrepreneurship and the resources necessary to make that possible in people's lives in your community. Uh, I work with folks who are coming out of incarceration at my day job. And a lot of them, we do have a lot of folks who um, have a substance use disorder and that prevents them from getting employment. A ton of them Really, their dream job is entrepreneurship, but they don't have the tools to make that happen. I was on a government-led uh, conference call a couple of months ago where the statement was made that one of the best treatments for substance use disorder is a job. And uh, But a lot of the folks that I deal with cannot fathom the concept of you know a regular eight to five or something like that. They've got a dream in their heart that they want to pursue but they don't know how to get from here to there. And so somebody like you can make a real difference in that role. So I'm really excited to see what happens uh, in your community. Yeah, I well, appreciate that. And I think you're 100% right. We piloted a few programs over the past years where we, we taught um, entrepreneurial mindset development workshops uh, in partnership with some of our local treatment centers where we took this curriculum that was designed for mindset development for aspiring entrepreneurs. And we overlaid it with the recovery programs that these guys were working, you know, whatever setting, whatever program it was. And one of the first things we found was that many of the concepts, many of the characteristics of what is called an entrepreneurial or a growth mindset uh, overlap quite nicely with the experience that these folks had, even during their days of active chaotic drug use. And I remember one guy saying, man, we're, we're entrepreneurs already. We just kind of need to need to redirect our energies and efforts toward more healthy, productive ends. You know, we know what it's like to hustle. We know what it's like to be creative and, and you know, and be resourceful with very li limited resources. So, yeah, it's an exciting field also to explore. That's that's the kind of thing I like to do is, is kind of work where not many people are working, you know, blaze new trails uh, where there are potential uh, there's potential value that not many people are tapping into yet. 
Well, I'm so grateful for you, for your work, and for this book. Again, friends, please get a copy of this book. Josh, how can folks get in touch with you online if they want to follow up on and get more information after reading the book? Yeah, yeah. A few, few different options. Uh, I'm, avail- I'm available, active on a few different social media platforms, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, TikTok. Um, I also have a website, www.lawsonwrites.com. And I've also recently started a, a Substack newsletter uh, for some more long-form content than uh, what I typically share on social media. So those are the places where people can find me. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Friends, we're going to put links to all of Josh's social media and to that Substack in the show notes so you can access it quickly. Man, thank you so much. I love you. I appreciate you. And I'm so grateful for you. You give me so much hope for the world. Thanks, man. Hey, same to you, brother. Feel all the same. And we're back. Yay. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about that subject. Um, Lola and Kyle, what, what do we do? Where, where did the church so miss it when it comes to helping people in recovery? I think there's a lot of reasons why. And maybe for me, off the top of my head, the top of the list for me would be judgment. You know, the church became experts at judgment, judging and condemning. And it's really, really, and I, I know what this is like. I lived this for so many years. It's really difficult to one, see people in their pain, see people in their misery, see people in their trauma, see people in their despair. It's really difficult to do that when you're looking at them with eyes of judgment and you're condemning them. And that's church to me. Looking at you with eyes of condemnation and judgment because you didn't get it together. You didn't pray enough, fast enough, trust God enough, clean up your life enough, whatever. You didn't do that enough. There was an old saying in our church growing up, when you get serious with God, God will get serious with you. The the burden is always on the people, right? The burden's always on the people. So with that mentality, you're looking at people saying, well, you've never got serious with God or God would have healed you by now. You never got serious with God or God would have cleaned you up by now. So it's, it's this judgment and condemnation. So it's really, really hard to help people from a sincere place of love and a genuine place of concern for their being when you're coming at them with an instant judgment and condemnation. Yeah. Yeah. For a while, I was the, the celebrate recovery pastor at a Methodist church. And it was incredible to see the difference. You know, it, it's almost like parting the Red Sea when one of the CR people would show up on Sunday morning the church folks would like part away from them, you know? And (laughs) it's, it's true. It's sad. And I mean, we had some really great folks at that church. So it's certainly not everybody, but like we would, we do our celebrate recovery services on Sunday night and we would invite the whole church to come to hear these testimonies and these stories of people who are starting to walk in freedom. And it it was like, Oh, well, you know, um, that's for those people. I don't have those issues. The reality is, I think probably everybody's addicted to something, right? I mean, for me, it was people pleasing. Um, it, it was food. I'm still addicted to food. Um, but <laughs> we can have, we all have addictions and we all have things that we need to be free of. And so, but you're right, Kyle, we love, we talk about how Jesus frees us from shame, but shame is the ultimate weapon of the church. It's how we keep people in line. 
I think it comes down to a lot of misinformation as well with addiction and not actually, you can say all day that it's a disease, but you don't treat it like a disease. Right. Yep. Like how you treat the shut-ins on your prayer list and how you treat the, you know, the cancer patients in your church. Because a lot of these people are in and out of jail too, you know, and it's like, there's a stigma with that. If you're arrested, suddenly you're a bad person in the eyes of the church sometimes. So it's like, especially with, you know, older people. So it's like the, the deeper that you get into addiction, the more you're just pushed away especially when you try to ask for help. And part of me doesn't even like blame. Okay, wait, I blame the church. But at the same time, I understand there's misinformation and there's there's a demographic difference too. You know, um, we're ever evolving. The people that go to my old church when like are much older now, you know, and there are new people coming in and there's a separation there because there's an age difference and there's also just a demographic difference of like race, different biases, you know, growing up in, in different areas. So there's just so much disconnect between individuals that it's hard to see people as human and to understand fully they are sick and that this is not a sickness that you get a pill for or you go to rehab once for. It's it's almost never ending. Honestly, even recovery is not always recovery because it's just not linear. Okay, I went to rehab, now I'm better. Okay, I, I did this, now I'm better. I have Narcan on hand. I'm good. It's not like that. It's just... Nothing about recovery is linear. Not to say that eating disorders or uh, hair pulling or anything like that is the same at all as uh, addiction. But along the same lines of recovery, it is not... You're never fully done. You're always striving um, you know, to stay clean, to stay healthy and everything. So it's, it's a conscious decision and it takes a lot of support like a lot more than what you'd you'd really expect. It's not just immediate family. It's literally every environment that you soak yourself into. So misinformation, really. <laughs> yeah, and the terminology around addiction is so destructive, right? Uh, oh, you you yes. just used a great example of that. And, and this it's the terminology that we've all been taught. So it's nobody's fault. It's just what is and we need to change it. We talk mm-hmm. about getting clean or having clean time as if everyone with an addiction is dirty or flawed or uh, depraved or broken or, you know, whatever the phrase may be. I mean, imagine if you went to jail for having cancer. (laughs) My God. (laughs) The way we treat addicts in our society today, especially in religious circles, it really reminds me of the way gay men were treated when AIDS first came to popular knowledge. Now, Lola's too young to remember this, Kyle, but you and I remember that it was a lot of young men, gay men, who were 
uh, getting sick with AIDS, um, at least that seemed to be what was happening around us. We were told that it was a, you know, a, a dirty person's disease and, you know, oh, you don't have to worry about that because you're not one of them and, and all those kind of things. And we look down on people and think, well, you know, if they got that, they deserve it. And we even had Bible verses to back that up. And it makes me sick now to think of some of the things that I used to believe. Kyle, do you remember that? Yeah, it was God's judgment. This was God's judgment on this abomination. Right. Is, yeah. is how it was really, you know, looked upon in the church. And uh, again, no, no, no love, no compassion. It was all judgment and condemnation. Like you said, you deserve that. This is your judgment. This is God's punishment on you. And it, it was, you know, it was, it, it, again, it fosters these mindsets that we, we pick up because we're in it and we're around it. And it's very easy to go with the flow and to be the status quo person. And, you know, you, you hear, and I was in the, the, the early 80s, so, you know, I was still, you know, a young teenager. Um, so you hear these things and, you know, you're looking up to these people who are saying these things and it, you, you form a mindset based upon these people, what these people you trust are saying. And, um, you know, I look back on it, like Jason says, a lot of regret at the way I treated people. And just because they were people, not because they had ever done anything to me, I treated people with, with disdain and disgust because I was programmed to see them in a disdainful, disgusting way. And uh, it's really horrible, really horrible. And I, I don't even, I don't even, real, I didn't even realize that I was doing that. It became an unconscious behavior because of the church environment that I grew up in. That's a learned behavior. I mean, it was inherited. So like, how could you have known any different if that's what you were first predisposed to? Also, too, a, a different angle with addiction is I think a lot of people lose a lot of patience very quickly with people struggling with addiction because it is very back and forth. And it can be draining for not only the support group, but for the the victim of addiction. So, I mean, it's just equally draining, if not more, on the addict. But I, I think... With Christians, at least in, in my experience, not everyone, but in my experience, um, they really want you to agree with them and be with them and, and behave just like them very quickly. There's, there's like a deadline for conversion and salvation sometimes. It, even if it's not like spoken, it's just like an, a subconscious. I have to get them saved by this point in time, maybe. So... There's always a goal in mind with that, it feels like. And I think patience runs out very quickly because we have these established deadlines for helping someone, saving someone, and fully supporting them. That's so true. Yeah. Yep. One, one more thing. In, in my church, at least growing up in the environment that I churched in, there was a huge belief or emphasis on just trying to pray it away. Uh, my father was an alcoholic. The man that raised me was my natural father, but I called him my dad. He raised me. He was an alcoholic. And I can't tell you how many times he went up for prayer. And that's what we used to call a prayer line, kind of like an altar call. And the pastor would pray for him and, you know, go through the whole motion. And, you know, and, and there was a, again, a, a judgment that 
would, would kind of come in the scene now and say, well, you've been prayed for. What's the problem? You know, what's the problem? You've been prayed for. As if that was the, the magic elixir that just kind of took it all away. And we didn't understand that. So we would hold him in even more judgment because he's been prayed for. So what's your problem, Dad? I don't get it. And it was really, it was really horrible. It's really, really horrible. I'm so sorry, Kyle. But we turn that around and, sh- and and put that on the person who's struggling, right? We say, well, yeah, we prayed exactly. and we know that God moved and God acted. So what did you do wrong? You put that addiction down on the altar, but then you picked it up and took it with you. Yep. That's the shame exactly what we that said. we dump on people in the church. It's really heartbreaking. I just want to say to our friends who are listening, if you're struggling with addiction today and the church has hurt you, I just want to say I'm so sorry. Uh, I was a pastor for 20 years. I was a part of that system. And I am so sorry that we have let you down so completely. And I just want to say that today you are loved. Everybody on this show and so many others love you. We love you. We value you. We see the image of God in you. You are worthy of dignity and respect. And please, please, please forgive us for the way that we have interacted with this issue in the church. I'm so sorry. And I would love for you to tell your story. If you want to reach out to us privately, if you want to uh, connect with us on the Messy Conversations group on Facebook, if you want to see this in email, whatever, we'd love to hear your story. You need to know that you are seen, you are heard, and you are loved. And we'd love to be a part of that. Guys, you have any final words before we go this week? I just want to also echo that you are so important. And wherever you are right now in your journey, we're here with you in it. And you can always talk to any of us. Uh, the Messy Conversations is definitely a safe place for you know hard topics. But whether or not you do reach out, I just need you to know that you're, you're enough and, and you're, worth, you're worth the time and the energy. And you really are vital to this world right now. And I would just add, whatever you're struggling with, when you know we don't we don't we don't care. And what I mean by that is we don't we would never hold that against you. I just mentioned my dad who's passed on and although he wasn't my natural father, he, he he did raise me and so I was around him and I called him dad. And if he was here today, I mean totally drunk like he had always been. I wrap my arms around him, tell him how much I love him, and just want to have a conversation with him. And that's the way you deserve to be treated. Not looking at your condition, but looking at you, the human being, the person. So I see you, and we see you. And that's what's most important. Thanks for listening, everybody. It's been great to be with you guys. 